You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. This third visit has been a long time coming, dear friends. So, uh, Pastor Charlie invited me to come in February. And uh, my entire family got the stomach flu, which was bad news. And then I was reinvited by his grace uh, in May, and I got COVID the week before I arrived. And I called Pastor Charlie to tell him I had COVID, and he said, I have COVID too. So we were COVID buddies. We were COVID friends in that week. And uh, it's just only happened with Gateway, by the way. I've never had to cancel on any other place. I don't know what it means. And this, w- and this week was not without its events either. So uh, Wednesday morning, early Wednesday morning, six o'clock in the morning or so, my daughter walks into our bedroom and she says, I don't feel good. And she's 10 years old and she's our strong one. She's the one that never gets sick. And she had a fever and a stomach ache in the whole nine. And I said, not today, devil. I'm preaching at that church on Sunday. I'm going to be there. Even if if I have a 103 degree fever, I will be on that platform. And I do. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. So uh, I'm totally healthy, but uh, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to the worship team and the pastoral staff, and especially to Pastor Harry for stepping in on last minute notice and preaching on those days. And I have literal nightmares of getting phone calls, having to preach in places I'm not prepared to preach. And so, uh, yes, it's just, it's wonderful uh, that they would do that uh, despite my lack and my weakness. But if you have your Bibles, please open them with me, please, to the book of Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're looking. Um, So just go right past Genesis and you'll find it, Exodus 32. And we're going to look at one of the most dramatic encounters in all of Scripture um, between a human being and God. As God and this human being go toe-to-toe together with the fate of the world hanging in the balance. Scripture is filled with all kinds of dramatic moments. And I see only two more, or two moments uh, that are more dramatic than this one, I should say. And the first one we see in Exodus 14, when Moses stands before the Red Sea with the Israelites behind him and then the Egyptian army behind them, they have no way out. And the question is, will God be faithful to his promise to Abraham and rescue his people? And if you've never read the story before, then you do wonder, is God going to be faithful? And of course, God tells Moses to stretch out the staff and the waters part. They cross the sea on dry ground and then Pharaoh and his army are defeated in the Red Sea. And then, of course, the second moment, or it's the most dramatic moment in all of Scripture, is that moment on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, that if we've never read the story before, we wonder, will God be faithful to his son and raise him up? And nobody assumes that Jesus Christ is going to be raised. And the surprise of Easter Sunday morning happens just as a surprise of the Exodus happens. Well, this is another surprising text. God is willing to give up on his own people precisely because they've already given up on him. They've built for themselves a golden calf. We're gonna see that here in just a second and annulled the covenant with God. And God tells Moses, I'm going to give up on them. I'm going to let my wrath go on them. And Moses has to stand in the gap and to intercede. And if Moses doesn't stand in the gap, then Israel is cut off. And if Israel's cut off, then we have no Israel, we have no Jesus, and none of us are here worshiping God this morning. So a very dramatic moment indeed. And the sermon fundamentally gets at the mystery and the beauty and the wonder 
of prayer. Today's message is fundamentally about prayer. How many of you believe that prayer works? Yeah, amen. How many of you had prayers where God has said yes to that prayer? Yes. How many of you had prayers where God said no to that prayer? Yes, good. So it's a room filled with God's disgruntled children and grateful children (laughs) as well. But yeah, we believe that prayer works. Better we should say we believe that God works when we pray and that God answers us when we pray. I don't know how prayer works. I don't know how our requests and our groans and our tears fit into the sovereignty and the providence and the foreknowledge of God. And let me say to you that if you meet anybody that tells you they have it all figured out in that regard, just walk in the opposite direction, right? Because it's too mysterious to pin down. There aren't, uh, there isn't kind of one answer to all of those questions. Um, So I believe that it works. I had the opportunity to serve in uh, a homelessness ministry in Atlanta as a part of my seminary education at Candler School of Theology in Emory. And um, I would have to be at this homelessness shelter, this emergency shelter every Monday night from 5 to 9 p.m. And they put me in charge of all kinds of random things that interns are in charge of. First, I was in charge of the breathalyzer, which as a good holiness Pentecostal kid that had never had a drop in his life. I had no idea what I was doing, but that was my first task. I was also in charge of helping residents apply for jobs on computers online, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the most fulfilling opportunities was that every Monday night at 8 p.m., I got to sit in on the AA and the NA meetings with a fellow fellow Candler student. She did such a good job leading them. She just reflected the heart of Jesus Christ and was so careful and thoughtful and uh, compassionate with those wonderful people and to hear their stories of redemption and brokenness and all that God was doing. And there's such authenticity to those conversations and beauty to those conversations. And at the end of every meeting, we would stand up and we would pray. She would ask the residents, do you want to pray the Lord's Prayer or do you want to pray the Serenity Prayer? And they would choose and we would all take hands and pray in that circle together, whether it was four of us or 14 of us. And after she would say amen, she would begin to rock our hands back and forth and she would say that common mantra or chant of 12-step programs which says, keep coming back because it works if you work it. Keep coming back because it works if you work it. And I think there's something to say about prayer in that regard. Keep coming back to prayer because it works if you work it. Even if it seems as though there's no answer, keep coming back because it works if you work it. So today's sermon is not necessarily about how to pray. Scripture gives us manifold examples of how to pray. First and foremost, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter six. Let's start there. But then, of course, we have 150 examples in the Psalms by which God teaches us to pray. And then every other prayer found in Scripture is an example by which to pray. And not only that, every Scripture in prayer can be prayed back to God and ought be prayed back to God in some fashion. Ellen Davis, a, a biblical theologian at Duke Divinity School, she says that the Psalms in particular give us a First Amendment right of the faithful. They are our freedom of speech before God, that there are all kinds of ways to pray. It's much more important that we're praying than what we're praying in particular. But this isn't a sermon necessarily on how to pray, nor is this a sermon recommending prayer to you as if you don't pray. I know this is a praying congregation You pray in this gathering, you pray in your various small groups, you pray in your homes, you pray in your private lives. And if you're anything like me, you carry a guilt complex anyway about not praying enough. Anybody that person? I should be praying more. Yeah, so this isn't a sermon to beat you over the head with the Bible to make you leave today feeling, man, 
I just don't have what it takes, right? And even when we pray, we're insecure. Did I say enough? Did I say too much? Et cetera, et cetera. So this isn't a sermon necessarily on that either. It's instead a sermon that addresses the beauty and the mystery of prayer and what happens as we pray, as God draws us into God's own life. So this is a sermon entitled, Getting a Hold of God, Getting a Hold of God. And we're gonna see this unfold in three textual moments in this Exodus 32 story. We're gonna see as Israel builds a golden calf that they try to get a hold of God and pray to God in all the wrong ways. And then after that, God's going to address Moses and tell Moses what Israel has done. And it's there we're going to see that God in God's grace has allowed us to take hold of him. That he holds us so tightly that we can take hold of him in prayer especially. And then in Moses' reply, we're going to see a, a, a model prayer, but we're also going to see that as we take hold of God, God has already and is taken hold of us. So getting a hold of God is what's before us. We're gonna read Exodus 32, starting in verse one. And just by way of background, God has rescued God's people, Israel, from the hands of the Egyptians. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. God leads them to Mount Sinai. It's there at that holy mountain that they hear God speak the 10 commandments with God's own voice and they are terrified. So they tell Moses, you go up on the mountain for us because we're gonna die if God keeps talking. So Moses goes up there, hears the law of God, comes back down the mountain, tells the people what God has commanded, and they all say this, in a blood covenant with God, they say, everything that the Lord has commanded, we shall do. That's the last thing we've heard Israel say prior to this moment. Moses then goes back up the mountain for 40 days. Bless his heart, he always got his steps in in those days. But, so he goes back up the mountain for 40 days, and it's there that God reveals to Moses the plans for the tabernacle. God wills to be close to his people, Tabernacle is fundamentally about making Sinai, all that holiness and all that sovereignty and authority portable to be with and near Israel. And God is revealing that plan to Moses. And as Moses hears those plans, Israel gets bored down at the foot of the mountain. And we pick up the story in verse one. This is what the word of God says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron, Aaron's Moses' brother, and said to him, come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, in the Hebrew, that Moses guy, as for that Moses guy, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So in this statement, they're violating the 10 commandments in two respects. First, when God speaks the Ten Commandments from Sinai, the first thing God says is not, you shall have no other gods. There's a statement before that statement. And it's, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God reminds them of his rescue of them. In the Jewish tradition, they call that statement, God's description of God's own acts for Israel, they call that statement the first commandment, even though it's not a commandment at all. Why do they do that? To remind themselves that all the commandments that follow can be trusted precisely because they're from the God who rescued us. If God was kind enough to rescue us, then he's kind enough to give us commands that we can trust that are for our good. So it's God that's the subject of Israel's rescue. But what did the Israelites just say? 
We don't know what happened to that Moses guy. He was the one who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So they're ascribing the Exodus to Moses's hand. Not good. And then God is going to command the first two commandments, no other gods and no graven image. Martin Luther has said, if you can get the first commandment right, no other gods, then all the rest of the nine follow effortlessly. The problem is that first commandment's very difficult. So what do they do? They make for themselves other gods and therefore uh, violate two commandments with one calf, two birds with one stone, as it were. So they are rejecting God's covenant. And this is Aaron's response in verse two. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. Where did these poor Israelite slaves get all that gold from? Their friends have recently been recommending that they invest in gold. That's what's happened. No, it's not. Late night infomercials. No, where did they get all that gold from? It's what God gave them as they left Egypt. It's a sign, what the Egyptians gave them. It's a sign of God's deliverance and God's blessing of them. And now the blessing has become an idol. So what does Aaron do? Verse four, he took the gold from them, formed it in a mold and cast an image of a calf. Why a calf? Well, in the ancient Near East, calves were representations of fertility and blessing and authority and power and strength. So they're making their God into the image of things that they like and that they want. They represent all that Israel wants for themselves in their God. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Those five things, an altar, a festival, burnt offering, sacrifices of well-being, and eating and drinking, all five of those are terms used to describe the proper worship of God commanded in the law. But now it's not going to God, it's instead going to the calf. We read this story and we say to ourselves, how stupid is Israel? Mount Sinai is a hundred yards away, The thunder of God has been heard upon that mountain. The cloud is still visible. Moses has been in that cloud for 40 days. How dumb can they be to turn their back on the very presence of God to make for themselves this little golden trinket? We would never be tempted to do such a thing, to walk out of this room, to go to our homes and build some altar in the backyard to some image and bow down to it. We wouldn't do that before an image, even if that image were from Hobby Lobby. There's a special anointing upon those images, isn't there? So we would never do such a thing, of course not. Not even images that we think are associated with God would we do that. But Israel's idolatry, if we read the text closely, is very subtle. You see, Aaron calls a festival, but that festival is not for the calf. Who's the festival to? The Lord. Israel doesn't think that they've turned their back on God to go worship a golden calf. They're not stupid. Instead, they think they're worshiping God in worshiping the calf, which shows us how subtle our idolatries often are. 
that it's rarely a matter for us as God's people to look at God and say, I don't love you anymore and I reject you and go do something else. That happens occasionally, but that's very rare. Instead, it's much more common for us to form God into our own image and assuming that we are worshiping God when in reality we're just worshiping something that our hands have made. Martin Luther and many that have followed him in the tradition said that fundamentally, Idolatry is a pulling of God down into our world and making God a means to our own ends. That God is no longer an end in himself, but instead God is now a means to my own predetermined ends. We make God who is wild and untamable and unpredictable, loving, but still sovereign and free. And we tie him to ourselves, pull him down into our own world and make him serviceable to our own ends. We remember that moment, perhaps, when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ for the first time and God saved us and God set us free and God was with us. But it's after that initial surrender that life with God becomes difficult because eventually all that transformation settles down and I like my life. It's well put together. It's, everything's in its proper place and it's nice and settled. But occasionally as God is, God will come along and shake things up, won't he? He'll ask me to get rid of things that I have not predetermined to get rid of. He'll ask me to change things around that I'm not ready to change. God is too wild and unpredictable. So I need to make God controllable. I need to put God in my pocket to ensure that nothing is ruptured in this regard. My wife and I uh, lead a small group on Sunday nights. Um, we have anywhere from eight to 28 people, depending on how many people are sinful that week. You know, you never know. But okay, so uh, we just sit down and talk about biblical texts together. And we have a really thoughtful conversations precisely because the people in there are just so thoughtful and they're hungry for God and God's word. And on one particular night, we were talking about idolatry, but not from Exodus 32, from Jeremiah 2, where God tells Israel this, you have worshiped worthless things and therefore become worthless yourselves. So we become what we worship. You've worshiped worthless things and have become worthless yourselves. You see, the punishment for idolatry is not that God has to come along and hit us upside the head. The punishment for idolatry is that idolatry is successful. That God allows us to have the gods that are not gods. And as God allows us to have the gods that are not gods, we worship things that are dead and therefore become dead ourselves and wonder why we are so miserable. We punish ourselves in idolatry. God need not punish us when we worship other gods. So you worship worthless things and become worthless yourselves. But we talked a bit about this idea, the way in which we often make God into our own image and fail to see it and worship what we think to be God, but is in reality just a concept of God within my own mind. And so I asked them, how do we do this? And they came up with all kinds of brilliant answers. And I wanna share three of them with you. These are gods that are not God that we worship and think are God. Are you with me? All right. The first one, the tribal God, the tribal God. This is a God who exists to underwrite my own ideologies. He's the mascot for whatever it is that I like. This is God, the Republican, God, the Democrat, God, the American, God, the one who underwrites whatever future and dream and ideology I subscribe to. The danger of this is that I don't realize that I've made God into my own image and I think in obeying my ideology, I'm actually obeying God. Why do we like this God? Because this God is not free. 
this God is not free to disagree with me. And this God is not free to side with my enemies over against me. He looks just like me. That's why I like the tribal God. Then there's also the religious God. The religious God, what's that? He is just a heavenly punishment reward system. If you do good, God will do good to you. And if you do bad, well, watch out. God will do bad to you. And to be sure, there is a correlation between blessing and obedience and disobedience and punishment. That's in scripture, but it's by no means automatic, but we like to make it mechanical. So if you say a four-letter word in traffic, get ready. God's coming to get you. I don't know how, I don't know when, but he will get you. But then more seriously, if you're suffering, well, then there must be some reason for that suffering. There must be some sin in your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sick like you are sick. We can't abide mystery. This God is not free. He's predictable, he's controllable, but he's not free. He's especially not free to show mercy upon those whom he chooses to show mercy. And he's not free to show love to the 10,000th generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. So we've got the tribal God, the religious God, and the third is the sentimental God. This is God who is just a heavenly emotional support system. He just wants the best for me. And the best is just to underwrite my ongoing average American existence. Which means, therefore, that yeah, sure, I've got some problems. I've got some peccadilloes that I need to work out. But God's not in any hurry to solve those or confront me with those, precisely because that would make me unhappy. And God just wants me to be happy, doesn't he? So this God is not free to stand in judgment over me. This God is not free to bid me come and die. This God is not free to tell me to crucify my flesh that I might know what true living is. I get a hold of God, I pull him into my world and I set him up as a little trinket in my house to underwrite whatever life plan I already have going for myself. We might put it this way in summary. There are a few things more difficult to abide in a life with God than God's freedom. We'd rather God be predictable than powerful, intimate than infinite, understandable than untamable. The wild God who once rescued us seems too wild to lead us. So we take his name and we write it on the well-polished images that keep us safe, but they cannot save us. Tragically, we fail to see that our prayers become nothing more than a talking to ourselves. If the story ends there, we have no hope. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, on Sinai, what happens? Verse seven, God talks to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. God talks to Moses like they're a married couple. Let me tell you what your son did today, right? This is the way we talk about our kids to one another because all their faults are yours, not mine. So God is kind of cranky here, but God is also a little sarcastic because Israel earlier in the narrative had said Moses was the one that brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So God's like, yeah, that was you, Mo. That wasn't me. I had nothing to do with that rescue. Don't you love it when God gets sarcastic? It's proof that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. It is. I've set some of us free this morning and some of us are very gifted, aren't we? Some of us are very gifted with that. It's not in 1 Corinthians 12, but if you look at the Greek, it's it's close enough. So sarcasm, you see there? All right, so, all right, bad, bad jokes. But they've acted 
perversely, says God, acted, but they've corrupted themselves. This is the same word used to describe Noah's generation that has no hope except to eliminate them. So this isn't just a matter of Israelite mischief. Ah, they're into mischief again, silly Israel. They have annulled the covenant from their end. They have corrupted themselves. This is the equivalent to cheating on one's spouse on the honeymoon. God has every right to give up on them. This isn't an angry God for no reason. God is totally within God's justice to give up on Israel. God describes what they've done in verse eight. They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They've cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. You can't change them. If God's going to be yoked to Israel as God's promise has been, then it's on God to keep the covenant going because they're too stiff-necked to change. Verse 10, here it is. Now, let me alone, Moses. Isn't that interesting? Leave me be, let me alone, Moses, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you... I will make a great nation. Let me alone. Put something at rest in the Hebrew. Put me down, Moses, as if Moses has a hold on God. What do we make of this? That's interesting, isn't it? Well, I think there are two ways, two things that we ought to avoid in making sense of this moment. The first one is a kind of flat-footed, simplistic reading where God is like an angry man in a bar fight that's telling his buddy, let me go so that I can beat this guy up. That's not God. God is not subject to God's passions. God is totally in control of God's own being and sovereign over God's own essence. And therefore God's wrath is just an outworking of God's love and of God's justice. So God is totally at right to be angry. God is not subject to his passions and needs to be let go as if Moses is his leash. But on the other hand, so if we don't want to simplify the text and flat-footedly read it, we don't, want to, we don't want to domesticate it either. So I talk to my students about this text in our Old Testament class, and I ask them, what's going on here? And many of them always have this answer, and this is a good answer to think about. And they say something like this, well, God isn't actually going to cut Israel off. God's just posturing, playing with Moses a little bit to see if Moses rises up to the occasion and passes the test. But if he doesn't, well then, God, God does just say, just kidding, and do something else. Well, God might be, in fact, testing Moses, but it doesn't say that here. God says, let me go. Moses has a hold on God that God in God's own freedom has allowed Moses to have make of this? Well, it shows us that God, in God's freedom, has opened himself up to us, his people, because we are found in his son, and therefore our prayers are his prayers. He's opened us, our, himself up to us, has made himself vulnerable, is willing to accommodate, is willing to adapt, like a good parent, is willing to adjust, that God invites us to have the long conversation at the dinner table, to go 15 rounds with God and to argue it out. God is open to us in his sovereignty and freedom, adjusting to us, and prayer is stepping into that invitation, that openness. We are the only creatures created in the image of God 
according to Genesis chapter one. When God creates the world, how does he do it in Genesis chapter one? He speaks, that's right. God said, let there be light and there was light. God speaks the world into existence, which means that the world itself finds its existence, finds its life only in the word of God. So our very first act as creatures, dear friends, before you were even conscious of yourself, your very first act was an act of obedience because if you had not obeyed, you would not exist. So you obeyed God's word and you were born. You came kicking and screaming out of your mother's womb. So God's word is our existence and our sustenance so that our word, I mean God's word, as we hold to it becomes our very life. That obedience is what sustains us precisely because God's word is what sustains us. All creatures find their life in God, but we're unique. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? All kinds of proposals have been made that perhaps it's because we're rational creatures or we're relational creatures or we have souls unlike your cats and your dogs, right? Uh, perhaps they do have, your, but your dog has a soul, you know? The others don't, but your dog does. Anybody, their, their pet has a soul? Yeah, maybe so. If only it did, right? If only it did. So uh, perhaps it's because we walk on two legs, people have said. All kinds of proposals. But Robert Jensen uh, just recently passed away a few years ago, American theologian. He says that perhaps it's not something we carry ourselves. Perhaps to be created in the image of God means that we are the only creatures God has made who can talk back. We are the praying animals, says Jensen. So God welcomes our dialogue, not that God needs it, but welcomes it and likes to have long conversations with us and hears us out and takes us seriously as God's own people. Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian of the 20th century, talks about God taking us seriously and answering us in prayer in this way. This is what he says. Prayer is a grace an offer of God. Let us approach the subject of prayer from the given fact that God answers. God is not deaf, but listens. More than that, he acts. God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. Now hear me, Bart is not saying that we can control God. He's instead saying that God in God's grace has made himself available in this way. God has allowed us to take hold of him in his grace. That is what the word answer means. Perhaps we doubt the sincerity of our prayer and the worth of our request, but one thing is beyond doubt. It is the answer that God gives our prayers are weak and poor. Nevertheless, what matters is not that our prayers be forceful, but that God listens to them. That is why we pray. God listens to us, opens himself up and says, let's talk this out. Let me go, he says to Moses. If you know the story of the two disciples that are walking on the way to Emmaus, Jesus has disguised himself. They don't know it's Jesus. He's resurrected from the dead. And they're telling him all their troubles that this Messiah they expected to be, this man they thought to be the Messiah is now dead. Jesus listens carefully and then he explains to them why the Messiah must suffer according to the scriptures. They still don't know it's Jesus. They finally arrive at Emmaus 
There's this careful, there's this moment that's easily overlooked, but I think expresses something that we find in Exodus 32. Jesus acts as if he's gonna keep going. I'm going this way, says Jesus, but he pauses and waits to see if they'll invite him in. And they say, no, no, will you, will you stay with us, Jesus? Will you eat with us? And of course he says, Yes, and they welcome him in, they break bread, and it's in the breaking of bread that they recognize him as the risen Lord. God in our lives pauses for a moment. I'm going this way, but will you talk me out of it? Let's have a conversation together. I'm open. That's how much I love you and take you seriously. We might summarize that idea with these words. God is free of us. He don't need us. And yet in his freedom, has freely chosen to suffer us. And we are a bunch to suffer, aren't we? While we corrupt ourselves with gods that are not God, the good news is that God keeps talking. Let me go, God tells Moses, and thereby preaches the gospel to us. I've held you so tightly, God says, that you in turn have taken a hold of me. God has so gotten us that he has been gotten by us. As God holds us, prayer is nothing less than holding God back. Holding God back. As God holds us, prayer is to say yes to the invitation and step into the mystery of the moment and see what happens. Okay, well, the story doesn't end there. Moses is one for the task. And in verse 11, he steps up. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? You see it. Moses places God back at the center of Israel's story, rightly acknowledging God as the rescuer. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is concerned with God's PR. It's bad for your reputation, God, if you considered the amount of hate emails you will get. All right. Turn from your fierce wrath, says Moses. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and what does it say? Israel. Does Israel have another name? What's Israel's first name? Jacob. It means deceiver, right? But Moses is going to err on the good side of Jacob. Don't worry about Jacob, Lord. Remember Israel, right? Remember Israel. Very careful in his rhetoric. Your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Moses, in his prayer, appeals to God's rescue, God's reputation, and ultimately to God's promise. And God hears in Moses reminders of his own promise. Had God forgotten, God had written it on a sticky note and left it in a heavenly junk drawer. And he just was like, where is it? I need someone to remind me. No, God is not forgotten, but instead God hears in Moses echoes of his own promises. Moses hasn't always prayed this way. His life with God hasn't always been this tense or intimate, we might say. 
But the first time God meets Moses, ironically enough, it's on this same exact mountain. When God calls Moses from the burning bush, it's on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai that that takes place. Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep. He's a fugitive of the law. He's on Egypt's Egypt's most wanted. It's a bad joke. But uh, he's running from the law, running from this past. He's trying to figure out his life. God encounters him as he leads the sheep on the far side of the wilderness. God encounters him in this burning bush. He sees it out of the corner of his eyes and he's curious. He goes to check it out and God says, Moses, Moses. He says, Hineni in Hebrew, here I am. Here I am. And God says, you're the one. Well, first he says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And he does. And then he hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. God tells him, the groans of the Egyptians have come up to me and I'm sending you, groans of the Israelites, excuse me, have come up to me. I'm sending you to save them from the hand of Egypt. Now, everybody in scripture that's worth their salt rejects God or at least objects to their call. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel says, it's gonna interfere with my priestly duties. Even Peter says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then Gideon says, I'm too weak and I'm too small. I can't do it. So have you ever resisted the call of God upon your life? Welcome to the club. It's a big group of people. Millions of us have joined this club. But the objector par excellence in scripture is Moses. Moses is the only one in scripture who objects five times. And he's second in the Bible only to Jesus Christ in terms of importance, five times. So God says, you're the one I'm going to send. And Moses says, who am I that I should go? Some insecurity. And God says, I will be with you. That's not much of an answer, is it? Doesn't address Moses. Doesn't address the question he asks, who am I that I should go? But in some respects, perhaps it does. Moses The most important thing about you is not any quality that you have or don't have. The most important thing about you is that you are the one with whom I am. I preceded you and I'm with you and it's my task, not your task, and I'm with you. Your identity is that I won't give up on you. That's your identity. Okay, you think that'd be good enough? It's not. Moses says, "Uh, God, what's your name? What do I tell him your name is? I don't know what your name is. God says, I am that I am or... I will be what I will be, or I will be what I am, or I am what I will be, depends on how you translate it, which is a way of saying I am everything. The rabbis have said that his name means I will be what tomorrow demands. I will be what tomorrow demands. You wanna know who I am, Moses? Just wait and see, and you'll see who I am. I'm the God who rescues Israel out of the hands of its oppressors. You'd think that would be enough. It's not. Moses says, I'm gonna need a sign. God says, okay, good, what's in your hand? A staff, throw it on the ground. What does it become? A snake, that's right. And so Moses backs away from the snake. He's terrified. And then God says, now, pick up the snake. That would have been it for me. (laughs) Nope. Go find someone else. I'll just die here in this wasteland. I'm not touching that thing, right? But Moses reaches down and picks up the snake. It's proof that he was Pentecostal. So he's, (laughs) it's a bad joke. But so he picks up the snake and what does it become again? A staff. And then he gives him a second sign. Put your hand inside of your cloak. This is my Mr. Rogers sweater. So he pulls his hand out and it's all leprous and white. He puts his hand back in the cloak, pulls it out and it's totally healed. A second sign. That's gotta be enough, right? Not for Moses. All right, Lord, uh, I can't talk so good. To which God says, shut up, you idiot. I made mouths. Yeah, I made mouths and you'll be just fine. And more than that, I'll give you Aaron to be a mouthpiece for you. So your point of weakness will actually be a place of connection and community and fellowship so that you can lean on others to speak my word when you can't. 
You think that would be enough? My favorite is the fifth. Please send someone else. I'm out of excuses. I got nothing left. Please send someone else. And it's then that God gets angry and says, you're going. Well, just a handful of months pass by and Moses is on this same mountain. And here he's no longer insecure. He's now interceding. And where he was very self-concerned, now he's God-concerned and Israel-concerned because Israel is at the heart of God's promise. So all of these things show us that Moses has changed. That somehow as God has gotten hold of Moses, Moses has gotten hold of God and Moses has been changed in that interaction. So what we have here is not an interaction between mean old God that mean old Old Testament God too. He's especially mean then. Until you read the book of Revelation, you're like, not so bad, you know, not so bad. So mean old God and nice human being, that's not it. Instead, as I said earlier, what we hear on Moses' lips, as John Webster has said, what God hears in Moses' speech is echoes of God's own voice. So that Moses has been invited the table with God, and it's not just sitting there with God, but it's now talking with God as God's own voice, reminding him of his promise and speaking as God speaks. God in himself is a conversation. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so to pray, this is the beautiful thing, to pray is to be caught up by the Spirit into God's own self-conversation that when you pray, it doesn't matter if you're praying for the simplest things like traveling mercies. Anybody pray for traveling mercies before long trips? I do too. Or big things like world peace and solving global hunger. Everything in between. But when we pray, God invites us to the table and we find ourselves speaking God's own words after God and thinking God's own thoughts after God, moving from glory to glory the glory as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, that's what we signed up for. Is that as we get a hold of God, we find that God's taken hold of us and we reflect him more and more and more. We did not sign up for this Christianity thing to become better people or to get a golden ticket into heaven. I, uh, I, I taught a class in May, a May semester with some friends a New Testament scholar, so I was the Old Testament scholar. I had a New Testament scholar friend and a philosopher, theologian friend. We taught a class on heaven, hell, and the afterlife for four weeks, two and a half hours a day. And it was heavy, <laughs> as you can imagine. But the very first day, we asked the class, okay, when you think of heaven, what comes to mind? And we listed it all on the board for about 45 minutes. And we got everything from, what can you imagine? Gold streets, pearly gates. Somebody said chocolate trees music, right? Whether animals are there, what songs we're singing, all that kind of stuff. We got to the very end of the exercise and I said, there's something missing from this board. Guess what it was? God was missing from the board. That's making God a means to our own ends. God becomes a means to a paradise I've made in my own mind. Dear friends, God is paradise. God is heaven. God is life. And so to be in him is to be alive. God is love. And so to be in him is to be loved. God is peace. So to be with him is to be at peace with him and with one another. The goal is not 
be good people, get by in this life and get the golden ticket. The goal is to share in that dialogue and to find that God has opened himself up to us such that we can sit at the table and talk as he talks and think as he thinks with him, to allow him to take hold of us, not bringing him into our world, but being caught up by him into his world. In John 20, Jesus has just risen from the dead. No one has seen him yet. Mary and two of the disciples, Mary Magdalene and two of the disciples go to the empty tomb and they realize that he's not there. Mary peers in a second time and sees two angels sitting there, two men dressed in white, and they ask her, who are you looking for? And she says, they've taken the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And she's panicking and she looks around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. She mistakes him for the gardener. So the gardener asks her, Jesus asks her, who are you looking for? Why are you crying? God, the good counselor, asking questions. He likes dialogue. Who are you looking for? Why are you crying? And she says, if you know where they've put the body, please tell me so that I can go and get it and I can, I can care for it. And what does Jesus say? Mary, he says her name. And then she says, Rabboni, my teacher, my teacher. And what does she do? She clings to him. She gets a hold of him. And what does Jesus say? Don't hold on to me. What is that about? He just had the robe dry cleaned, right? You'll get it dirty. Don't hold on to me because I have to go to my father. I haven't gone there yet, but go and tell my brothers, go and tell my disciples that I'm going to my father and your father, he says. It's the first time he said that in the gospel of John. I'm going to my father and your father. I'm going to my God into your God. What is Jesus saying? Don't pull me into your world. Let me catch you up into my world. Let me catch you up into my character, into my presence, into my purposes, into my future. That's what prayer is. That's what prayer is. Getting a hold of God and finding all along that he has gotten a hold of us. Some of us in the room have been praying for things for a long time. We've been praying for broken children. We've been praying for illnesses. We've been praying for broken communities. We've gotten a hold of God for a long time. Let me tell you that God delights in you taking hold of him. Those prayers are seeking after God's own heart and don't let him go until he blesses you. Wrestle him through the night, 15 rounds. Don't let him go until he blesses you and you'll find at the end of the wrestling match, whatever answer comes, you'll find that your name has changed too. You've got a new name. You've got an injury too, but you've got a brand new name. Isn't it such good news that God has got us and allows us to get him too? Let's pray together. God, you are free. You are sovereign. You have no need of us. And yet you in your infinite grace and wisdom have chosen to be near us, have chosen to take hold of us and in so doing have allowed us to take hold of you. Oh God, we've been trying to get a hold of you for some time. God, show us that you hold us first. Whatever idols we carry, whatever trinkets we've placed your name on, we ask God in the name of Jesus that you would shatter them. We repent of them now. In the name of Jesus, we cast them down we ask only to behold and to see you for who you are. 
And God, move us toward you such that we move from glory to glory toward you, that we sit, at, sit down at the table with you and share in your very life. Change our names this morning. Be near us. We take hold of you today because we trust that you've taken hold of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.